Well, good morning. Um, so, yeah, Sermon on the Mount today, and then we'll be doing this series in Psalms, and I get one of those first week in November. The first week in December, we'll be starting Christmas, Advent kind of stuff. So I actually am going to finish the Sermon on the Mount the last Sunday in November. Um, If you do have your Bibles, let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. And uh, we'll read verses 21 through 23 this morning. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Let's just start with a brief prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, be our teacher this morning. Pray that you will be in our presence by your Holy Spirit to help us to understand the words of our Lord Jesus and uh, that they may bear fruit in our lives for you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been said that the task of preaching is twofold. To comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. You've heard that. I much prefer doing the first, especially when I'm looking out on a group of dear saints who have been so good to me uh, over many years. But of necessity, we have to do more of the second this morning because in these verses, Jesus brings a sober warning in some of the most solemn words ever spoken. Now, Jesus has been concluding his remarkable Sermon on the Mount with a series of warnings. You know, he began with those blessings, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And he he kind of concludes the body of the sermon when he gets to, therefore, whatever you would have men do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And then he closes with a series of warnings. In verse 13 and 14, which we looked at a couple months ago, he warned about dangers outside the church, dangers from the world, you might say, the broad way that can lead to destruction. And he urged us to enter in, into his kingdom, into the church, by the true, the narrow gate, to get in. And then in verses 15 and 20, though, he warned us that even in the church there's danger. Danger from false prophets, false teachers and leaders who can deceive us, tell us lies. But now in verses 21 through 23, he warns of a still more insidious danger, a danger in our own hearts. And he warns us that we can deceive ourselves even about the most important thing of all. So it's vital to try to understand just what Jesus is saying here. And the first thing we notice is that he's talking about what will happen on a certain day. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, 
that day. What day? And it can really be only one thing. What the prophets often called the day of the Lord. What Jesus in several places calls the day of judgment. For example, a few chapters later in Matthew 10. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. It's that day. It's the day Paul talks about in Romans 2.5, the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The day when God's righteous judgment is revealed, that is, uncovered, exposed to view, when it's seen, hasn't happened yet. But it's the day when Jesus comes again, when God, the righteous judge, brings his perfect justice to earth, brings an end to the darkness of the world, and sets everything right. And, and if God is just, if he's good, th- this has to happen. The, the wrongs need to be righted. God needs to return, if he's a faithful creator, to make it right in the world that he's made. And for most of creation, this is very good news indeed. The Bible usually treats this as good news. For example, in Psalm 96, I mean, the whole creation is like dancing for joy at this day. Uh, Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea roar with all its fullness. Let the field be joyful in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord, for he's coming, for he's coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. So this is, this is great news. All evil will be done away with. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It will be the end of the long night of this world and of the reign of this present darkness and the ushering in of the day, the great day. And the light of that day will reveal the true nature of everything. And I'm afraid that won't be good news for everyone. I mean, that day is kind of bad news. Some people are going to be uh, asking the hills to fall on them and the rocks to hide them from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Because all masks will be off. Everything's going to be exposed. Everything will be seen for what it really is. There will be no hiding of anything. And for some, that light will be a fire. And some things will not endure the burning. So the prophet Malachi talks about that day like this. For behold, he says, the day is coming. The day burning like an oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But... To you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. So the sun's going to rise. Will it be a blessed light that brings healing or, or, or a fire that burns away the stubble? 
So what we see here is a great division. There's a great dividing coming, a separation of the wheat from the tares, of the sheep from the goats. Like Jesus talked about in Matthew 25, that great scene of judgment when he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. He's going to sit on the throne as judge. And all the nations shall be gathered before him and he will separate them, separate them, one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he'll set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Which has nothing to do with the seating arrangement in the... uh, pews right now but separation everything that was mixed up together is going to be divided into its true colors right everything that's been hiding uh, will be exposed and there's no escaping that day the writer of Hebrews tells us it's it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment right there are two sure things. Actually, not death and taxes. Uh, maybe, maybe that too. Death and judgment, though. Uh, yeah. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, for we must all appear. See, there's no, you can't send an excuse that day, right? Or call in sick. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And in Romans 14.12, he says, So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Is that not an astonishing idea? Each of us is going to have to stand before our God and give an account of our life. Now, not surprisingly, this is not a popular doctrine. It's not fun to read. It's not that fun to preach. Because, see, so someday, one of the things you may have to get account for is that you heard these things that I'm saying. But I'm going to have to give an account for having said them, you know. And, you know, teachers will be uh, judged by a stricter standard, supposedly. So... I'm toast. Anyway, I. But this is not a popular doctrine. I recently heard it suggested that this is just why atheists become atheists. Now, I think there's something to this. See, they don't want to be judged, really. That's the, that's the God they don't want. They don't want to be answerable for their deeds. So they don't want there to be a God. They don't want there to be a God. Thomas Nagel, one of the more reasonable of the public intellectual atheists, uh, has said as much with rare candor. He, 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 He says this. He says, look, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. That's quite honest. He's so honest. You know, he just, uh, 
he, he's still an atheist, but his most recent book caused a lot of controversy among philosophers. He wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos with the subtitle, Why the Materialistic Neo-Darwinian Consensus uh, Explanation of the Universe is Almost Certainly False. And in the book he says, look, we've got to face it. This way of explaining mind and intentionality, and it's just not working. And please help me out, he basically says. We need a new paradigm. We don't want to bring God into it, but this isn't working. Well, again, the God we don't want is the God to whom we must give account. That, that's just the one that, 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 that we don't want to deal with. The God who will judge us. I mean, isn't that why many Christian youths lose their faith when they go off to college? I mean, why is that? Is it because they are presented with knockdown, compelling, rational arguments that prove their faith is unreasonable? Is that, is that how it goes? Doesn't it more often go something like this? I mean, they're away from parental authority and, and their old social supports, all the things that uh, kind of they were tied into that made good behavior uh, profitable, say. And uh, for the first time, that's all gone. And they're presented with all kinds of opportunities, new opportunities to try things, to have fun. And the old religion becomes, kind of becomes a drag. Maybe they want to move in with their girlfriend and they don't want to feel guilty about it. And really it's a great relief for them to shuffle off their old beliefs. Arguments will conveniently follow. But then even Christians don't talk much about judgment anymore. Uh, Still less of the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. Remember that? The Bible says it's the beginning of wisdom. It's not the end of wisdom. I think the end of wisdom is when you love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. But until you've had that chill down the spine experience of the reality of God as judge... I don't know you, as you get there. I don't know if your heart is prepared for the gospel. Anyway, the God of popular therapeutic religion these days, you know, he's supposed to be up there when I need some help, when I need some comfort on a cold night or a hard day, and otherwise pretty much mind his own business. He may be my friend, some of the older ones among us here may remember that Crocodile Dundee, you know, me and God, we be buds. We're okay with that kind of God. Uh, but my judge? What? I mean, God's going to judge me? 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 I mean, who does he think he is? We're taught to see ourselves more as victims than sinners. And God may have to answer to us someday for messing up the world, maybe messing up my life, and we'll try to be, we'll try to be merciful. Uh, 
But he's got a lot of explaining to do. (laughs) No, he does not. And I wonder how many, even among Christians, spend time on the startling notion that we will have to answer to him for our actions, for the lives that we've lived. Well, whatever we think about it, a day of judgment is coming. And you and I will be there. We needn't fear that day if we belong to Jesus Christ. Remember what uh, Paul says in Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or Jesus says in John 5, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life. You have it now. and shall not come into judgment, but has already passed from death into life. But here's the warning, okay? Here's the, uh, the sobering thought. You can be deceived about this. Even you. About the most vital thing of all, about the safety of your immortal soul. You can think you're all right and not be. At least Jesus seems to think so. And really, it shouldn't surprise us that there will be surprises on the day of judgment. I mean, Jesus told us in many places that it would be a day of great reversals, as in Mark 10:31. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. You remember that? That makes sense because. Well, we know so little and we can only see the outsides of things. We look at we look at the mass people present to us. We look at shadows. But God sees things as they really are. As uh, God told the prophet Samuel in, in 1 Samuel 16:7, for the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. There's a Greek word for God that is used in the New Testament, the heart knower, the cardionostos. That's God. It's not us. Right? The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know it? And that's why some things that look good to us turn out not to be, as Jesus pointed out to some Pharisees in Luke 16, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That shouldn't be that surprising. Since he's omniscient, since he really knows and really sees. They're an abomination in the sight of God. And if they're that in God's sight, then that's what they are. Because God sees things in their truth, in what they actually are. If you look at the judgment scene in Matthew 25, by the way, that we referred to, one thing you might notice is that everyone is surprised. The sheep are surprised. The goats are surprised. 
Nobody, nobody seems to be expecting what they hear, right? The saved don't seem to know it. The lost don't seem to know it. So there it is. The warning here is specifically that someone can think they're a Christian and be wrong. Uh, Matthew 7.21 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, notice these folks are saying the right things. They're theologically correct. They call Jesus Lord. That's the great confession of the church. In fact, they seem fervent in their faith. They're not indifferent because they not only call him Lord, they call him Lord, Lord. Twice, they'll do that again in the next verse. And they are doing Christian things. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? Some of your translations have miracles. The the word just means acts of power. I do some really powerful things. Now, as an aside, you know, this doesn't really seem like a good strategy on the Day of Judgment to me, you know, to list all the great things uh, I did. Some of you will remember that Billy Graham always said, I'm not going to get to heaven. I'm not going to say, well, I'm Billy Graham. You know, well, I, I preached all these people. I had all these decisions for Christ. I met with all these presidents. He's going to say, look, I, I'm just here because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. So I don't know if this argument, you know, probably fails from the start. But the point I want to make here is they can list some wonderful things they've done for the church. Maybe, they, maybe they've even preached some great sermons. They, they seem to believe the right things. They seem to do the right things. They probably went to church every Sunday. Some of you may remember uh, that old... Um, Gospel singer Keith Green used to like to say, uh, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. But anyway, they're doing all that stuff. But when the day comes, when the light shines, when the truth is revealed, the verdict is as chilling as anything in all of Scripture where Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Notice that Jesus says, I never knew you. Jesus is not here talking about someone losing their salvation. That question comes up. The person in view was never saved at all. And Jesus doesn't say, I used to know you, but uh, now I've forgotten you. Or, uh, you know, we were good friends at one time, but you're out now. Uh, which I myself don't believe can happen. What he says is, I never knew you at all. It never really was real. And what could be worse? I think I would rather be cut down and cast into the fire than to hear these words from the lips of Jesus Christ. Well, who are they? Who are these folks? 
Who is the verse referring to? Now, most of us console ourselves with easy answers. Most of us have a pretty good idea. You know, conservative Christians are pretty sure that it's those liberal Christians, Bible-believing Christians, but are, you know, we, we, we know it's got to be those, those folks that, uh, what the heck do they believe anyway? I don't know. But the liberal Christians have a suspicion it's those hypocritical conservative Christians. Some Protestants can clearly see the Catholics in this verse, and some Catholics the Protestants. I have a wonderful Catholic patient who brings me in material every visit. Uh, it's pretty good stuff, you know, to try to save me, which is good. I, I like that. We, we get along fine. But I heard a fairly famous Bible teacher expounding this, this passage and declaring with not a doubt that this is a condemnation of clearly, obviously, of charismatic Christians. Uh, after all, they're casting out demons. And I, you know, I had a suspicion about these folks and now this proves it. But, you know, these activities that they were doing are the very things the apostles themselves were doing. And yes, even one of the twelve proved false in the end. And if that doesn't send a chill down your spine, you're made of sterner stuff than I am. But mostly we assume he's talking about someone else. Some others who claim to be Christians, and especially those we disagree with. But see, the only safe use of this verse is to apply it squarely to ourselves and ask, as the disciples asked when they learned at the Last Supper that one of them would betray Jesus, remember, in, for example, Matthew 26:22, they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And that's the use you can make of this verse. Okay. You know, have a little prayer time. Said, Lord, is it I? I'll, I'll say the last time I seriously, seriously, uh, I didn't phrase it quite like this, but, you know, wanted to be really, really sure I was a Christian. It was when I had the cancer. It was when I was, it was like looking like I really was going to, die within a few months and I really, really was going to have to answer for myself and plus it seemed like like maybe God was punishing me or something, I don't know, but I had to really work through that because uh, I wanted to be sure as best I could so with our own selves squarely in view we can profitably ask What's the problem here? Where do these folks go so horribly wrong? They're calling Jesus Lord. That seems right. The only problem is that it's, well, apparently it's not true. Jesus isn't their Lord. If he was, they would do the will of my Father in heaven. But instead they practice lawlessness. They're saying the right words, but they're doing the wrong thing. Their confession is right but their lives are wrong. 
Now, it's believing in Jesus that saves us. Paul says in a favorite verse of mine, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto, unto salvation. Isn't that glorious? With the heart you believe unto righteousness. That's how you get righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And Jesus, when asked, what must we do to do the works of God? Answered in John 6.29, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. But I mean, there are beliefs and then there are beliefs, right? Such a belief, if it's from the heart, if it's really belief, trust, confidence in the living Christ, must change us. It doesn't simply mean holding right intellectual opinions about theology. The demons Jesus cast out made perfectly orthodox confessions about him. They, they had no doubts about who Jesus was. You remember. What have, what, have I to, what have you to do with us? We know who you are, the Holy One of God. James tells us that in chapter 2, verse 19, when he says, You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. The demons believe, but what good does it do them? And what good will believing the Bible from cover to cover do you if it doesn't change you? So James was right to warn us when he says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now notice that, deceiving yourselves, because this is precisely the problem with the folks in our passage. They've deceived themselves, thinking that their correct opinions would save them, despite the evidence of their lives. It's like their faith was in their faith rather than in Jesus Christ. Now, you don't become a Christian by doing works, but a Christian does works. You, you can't be born again by somehow earning it but if you've been born into a new life, well, we can expect to see some signs of life. When a baby is born, you know, you expect to see it moving and crying, breathing, and then developing, growing. If you don't see any of that, you, you might deduce that something's terribly wrong. And if you've been born of the Spirit, you know, you expect to see some some evidence, some fruit of the Spirit. And if you call Jesus Lord, but it doesn't change you, he has a right to ask, as he does in Luke 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? You know, oh, Lord Jesus, Lord, Lord, this, Lord, that. Wait, wait, wait a second. Why are you calling me Lord, Lord, and uh, and you're not doing anything I say? You're not. George MacDonald once said, instead of wasting yourself on soul-sickening questions about whether I believe enough, ask yourself, have you done one thing this day because Jesus said, do it? And have you refrained from one thing because Jesus said, don't do it? He said, it's simply 
silly to ask yourself whether you believe if, if you don't care about what he said. Because, of course, Lord is not his first name. It's not Lord Jesus Christ like Vincent Daniel Licata, right? I mean, Lord is, Lord is a title. Lord, calling Jesus Lord, suggests the relationship you have with him. It's the same thing. It's the flip side of calling yourself his servant. It means you're his servant. He's your master. And one day we'll have to stand before him and give an account of ourselves. And he's given us fair warning. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So in the light of all this, what are we to do? Besides skip the next time Vince preaches. And, uh, but seriously, (laughs) I think it makes some sense before the final examination comes, uh, you know, that we'd be wise to do some self-examination. Take a pop quiz or something. I don't mean that we should be constantly taking our own spiritual temperature or obsessing about such things or uh, always looking inward and trying to see how we're doing, which you can't really know. And We should be looking outward at the Lord, keeping our eyes on Him. But sometimes it, it can be helpful to take stock. Paul tells us to in 2 Corinthians 13.5. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. You don't want to be deceived about the most important thing. So examine yourselves. About what? Whether you're really in the faith. Test yourselves. How do we know that we know him and that he knows us? You could try John's first epistle. He gives a number of... uh, um, Examples of ways, uh, sort of little tests you can apply. For example, in 1 John 2, 3 through 4, he says, I mean, how do we know we know him? By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. I'm afraid the old idea of I'll accept Jesus as my Savior this year and maybe some other year if I really get serious, you know. Maybe I'll take a look at what he has to say. You know, uh, I think that's a fool's errand there. Well, we could try 1 John 3.14. Maybe that'll help cheer us up some. How do we know? We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. That's a good test, uh, whether you love. At some point, like me, you may take refuge in, I think it's in chapter 4, where John says, and if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. I sometimes run there for cover. Um, But look, if you do embark on this bracing enterprise, uh, let me warn you ahead of time, you may be in for some unpleasant surprises. Uh, But better be surprised now than later. (laughs) 
You may find that you're worse than you think. Honesty might compel you to take a hard look, not only at your deeds, but at your motives and why you did what you did. You may discover that even your best things, even speaking words of prophecy or casting out devils or doing wonders, won't stand close inspection, might prove mere wood, hay, and stubble in the end. In fact, an honest look inside may cause you to despair of yourself altogether. And I say the sooner the better. You may find yourself crying out with the publican in Luke 18, not daring so much as to raise your eyes to heaven, but beating your breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Also one of my favorite prayers. (laughs) Or with Paul in Romans 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's why Paul concluded that this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am chief. And these two did all right, didn't they? The publican went home justified, and Paul could rejoice in the very next verse in Romans 8, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In fact, this exercise, if followed honestly, will lead you back to Matthew 5.3 and to the beginning of this sermon. Remember, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It will lead you back to the first of all the blessings. It's just when you realize you don't have a spiritual dime in your pocket. You don't have one plea to make that the kingdom of heaven is yours. Because it's just when you know the utter poverty of spirit your utter poverty of spirit, that you come to the place where all the blessings begin. It's just when you give up on yourself entirely and cast aside all your pride and come with utterly empty hands and fall before the cross of Jesus Christ that you discover there that astonishing thing, that perfect miracle, God's grace. God's grace. The only thing that will do for you, right? Find that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. How do you come on that day? You remember the hymn. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. It's this plea, and only this, that will suffice in that day, that will endure its fire. Let's say a prayer, and then we'll close uh, with uh, a last song of worship. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you tell us the truth. 
that you, you tell us sometimes what we need to hear instead of what we'd like to hear. Thank you that you love us too much to play games uh, with our souls. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who bore our sins in his body uh, on the tree. Uh, Father, we come to him. We ask only for your mercy for his sake. And Father, I do thank you for uh, everyone who's come this morning. I, I ask that your good hand of blessing may rest on each one, that you would encourage their hearts, Lord, strengthen them, Father. Uh, keep them safe, Father, from every evil thing, from all the dangers without and within and bring us safely uh, into your kingdom. And now if you'll accept our worship, we offer that and this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.